0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Welcome to Colorado Hunting Hub. This podcast is designed to talk about everything hunting in Colorado, whether you're a new hunter old-timer or something else, Colorado Hunting Hub will have something for you. I'm your host, Clint Whitley, and let's get started.
0: Than
1: everyone, thanks for tuning in to Colorado Hunting Hub. We've got a cool series for you in this uh, next four episodes, and they are going to be region-specific. So, we're going to start with the northwest region and speak with some different cpw representatives to chat with us about those regions and a little bit about the herd outlook the herd health mainly around deer elk and ended up being a little antelope in there as well and then chatted with them about license allocations a little bit of that uh and then uh how the wildlife is managed in each region. And I had the same question set up for all four interviews, but each one ended up being a little different. And even though I do not hunt in three of the units or regions, I should say, uh, I got something out of each one. So even though you may only hunt in the Northwest, I would consider checking out the Southwest Southeast and the Northeast region audio. So that's coming up. We've got a couple of biologists on the Front Range, and then on the Western Slope, we've got the. Uh, I'll be able to listen to their titles, but uh, uh, Western Northwest region public they deal with the public and so kind of the, the publication. So sorry, Randy and Joe got messed up your, your titles, but, uh, they're in the, in the main portion of the podcast. So, so, uh, great guys there. And then, uh, Julie in the Southeast, uh, awesome there. And when I'm recording this, I hadn't quite done the Northeast one yet either. So some good stuff in all of these and we're going to pump them out all four at a time. So I hope you enjoy and get something, region-specific or get motivated to try out something new, maybe like the over-the-counter white-tailed deer tags in the Southeast. That was something new and kind of cool. So check that out. But before we get to that, we've got some giveaways that we're doing. Kind of crazy. I've got 99 people registered for the Onyx membership giveaway that I'm giving away, 12 of them over the next, well, 12, 11 months. I've emailed six people and redrawn the uh, May winner over and over. Nobody replies. So check your email. I'm giving, trying to give these away, and I can't. So hopefully that doesn't happen with the Vortex Binos. I posted on my Instagram that I pulled them out of the box. Sorry about that, but I had to, and I was quite impressed. I mean, I've got some. Uh, I've got a bigger set of Binos that I have the. Vortex razors and then I have some Mavens, but quite impressed with these 10 by 42s, and they'd be really nice to have a little smaller pair the for, for shed hunting or hunting period or something a little lighter weight for backcountry. So they're they're a pretty sweet little set of binoculars. Only 279.99 is what the MSRP is on those. Uh, and I've only got 183 people registered. So I'd say that's not horrible odds. And uh, then we also have the XL Mountain Gear Backpack. There's only 130 people registered for that thing. So we're not talking like one in a thousand right now. Your odds are far better than many, many giveaways. Uh, And this pack is that you could potentially win is valued at 600 to 680 bucks. It all depends on which one you pick. They're going to fit it right to you. And I tell you what, this is a pack. You need to get, I have no, this pack is not in my possession. So, uh, it's going to go right, fr- come right from XO. So you get, get that good fit. So I wish, hope, hope maybe one of my hunting buddies wins it. So, uh, <laughs> I know they're outfitted. So other things we got going on, uh, appreciate I hunt Colorado's Facebook page. If you haven't been over there, uh, make sure you like, ask to be a member of that group. Uh great group of guys, the admin there. And, uh, cause we almost chat daily on, on messenger about different things. So check out what's going on there. Uh, nice to stay up to date on some good things and, uh, be a part of a hunting community. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Colorado hunting hub, and got questions or comments, email me at clint.a.whitley at com. You can also find this podcast on Podbean is Hub, beancom You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it wherever you're listening to right now. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever you want if you don't like the platform you're currently using. I currently do everything on Apple Podcasts. And there, you could leave me a little five-star review. That'd be helpful. And uh, subscribe. If you subscribe, you're going to get these right away and you don't have to... Uh, sometimes I forget about podcasts and... and Certain ones, ones that I don't listen to continuously. So uh, it's nice to subscribe and they're there. So when I'm out of cell range or something, it's like, oh man, I ran out of what I normally listen to. I need to listen to this other one, like the exo Mountain Gear uh, pack or the backcountry. There's this backcountry uh, something or other. So sorry uh, for messing up. But they've got one. And so I subscribed. So I've got those episodes ready to go when I'm out of cell service and can't download them. So here we go. We've got the Northwest, the Southwest, the Southeast, and the Northeast region with CPW. Should be something for everybody out of these as long as you hunt in Colorado. So enjoy and let me know what you think. All right. I want to thank you for coming on to our show today and chatting with us about the Northeast region. And just wanted to chat with you about some of the outlook, some of the uh, of the different herds and license allocations. Just some of those those things that that is is good good to hear and and uh, things we can't just necessarily go and read. But uh, as a science teacher, former science teacher, and outdoor educator, I. I really enjoy the science pieces of that, and so I always, always love chatting with biologists about things and asking questions and things, so I appreciate you getting on the show, and I'll, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself, your role with CPW, how long you've been there, what, how do you like to recreate? So there's a f- pile of questions.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about what we have going on in the Northeast region, and I'm sure some people are sitting there with licenses either in their hand or that they know they have licenses that they get to get to go out and do some scouting. So hopefully I can give some good direction to those people and get you more excited about your upcoming hunt. So my name is Shannon Schaller and I'm the senior wildlife biologist in the Northeast region for CPW. And I've been with the agency since 2001. So I started in Middle Park chasing around radio collared mule deer And then I got hired on permanently as a district wildlife manager, and I was assigned to Summit County. So I did a bunch of work with, you know, working in Middle Park and still working around those radio-collared deer and chasing bears around Breckenridge and, you know, had moose for the first time in Breckenridge. So I got to deal with that throughout my 10 years as a DWM. And then I moved over to the Front Range. So I came to the Denver office as an area wildlife biologist, and I covered the area from Fair Play across Denver out to Lyman. So I had a quite a variable, um, you know, swath of habitat and species to work with. And I did that for seven years. And then I moved on to the senior terrestrial biologist. So now I cover the northeast corner of the state. And we have seven different biologists that work in the Northeast corner. We have a pilot that works for us. And then we also have a grasslands coordinator that works for us in the the Northeast region of the terrestrial section. So again, I get to work across a really variable habitat type for the whole state and with a bunch of different wildlife. I feel really lucky to be in the northeast region and it fits well with the things i like to do you, you ask what do i like to do in my free time i like to spend my time outdoors i love to be in the mountains i'm learning also that you know just the beauty of the plains of the state which is a great thing to learn about being in the northeast region i like to hunt i like to fish i like to hike trail run anything outdoors that's really what gets me excited about working in this agency and living in colorado
1: and Julie was the other biologist that we chatted with and I asked her kind of what's the, the species that drives her. And I, I'd like to ask you the same question. What's your favorite species to kind of work with and and what, maybe why is that?
2: My favorite species. i I suspect Julie said pronghorn, just knowing Julie. Um, yep. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> My favorite species is the moose. So like I said, when I started in Summit County, having moose in Breckenridge and Silverthorn was a new and novel thing. And and over the course of my career there, we went went from being a new and novel uh, experience for people to being able to hunt them. And so I got to work with moose a lot. When I moved to the Front Range. I initiated a radio collared study on moose in South Park, which overlapped with Breckenridge. Actually, so hours and hours of chasing around moose with radio collars, and and my husband's had a moose hunting license, and so getting to hunt moose it just all contributed to that being my absolute favorite species to look at and get to work with.
1: I wish I had a little more experience with moose. Uh, I found a dead radio collared cow a few years back and chatted with the biologist over here and she'd give me all the data on it and it was just cool to see the data points and hear the story of this moose and where it came from and how they don't necessarily always come down in elevation and kind of hung out in the same higher stuff and because of their adapted long legs to be able to work their way through this the deep snow so uh yeah i'm sure You've got some good stories I'd love to hear sometime, but one of the uh, things I, I just did that wasn't the main focus of our podcast today was, was, uh, I sent you an email about 20 minutes ago of a uh-huh. lucky find I had just this last week. So that's June like 12th or so 13th. I was out shed hunting and found a dead head and an old dead bull. Elk, and my science teacher mind kicks in kicked in. Just had, started help asking a lot of "why" questions and what happened here, kind of questions. So uh, I, I know none of us know because we weren't there watching this animal die, or, or we don't know its life necessarily. But based on the evidence I had, the antlers are in. They're not even really sun baked yet, so they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've picked up shed antlers this year off of elk that are already starting to, you can see that kind of clear or they lose their dark brown. This one, there was in some shade, but he still had all of his color. I picked up his jaw and could see some serious wear in that fourth molar there. And I know based on old, like QDMA, white tail deer, aging teeth, like that, as soon as you get a dip in like that fourth molar or something that indicates some age, but I don't know what the overlap with moot or elk is kind of thing. And then it had, I mean, the hide was only left. It looked like a bear must've chewed up the whole skull. Um, So I'm just curious about age, you know, did it look like based on the pictures I sent you and I know there's not enough there to see, but did it look like that was maybe an old, old bull, that might've just got sick and died or, or what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think you hit on some really important points. I mean, one, the, the antlers are still dark Brown and they're not bleached out. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that that died sometime this winter or not that long ago. And even looking and seeing just kind of some fleshy parts on the skull that still have some meat there that, I don't think it had been dead all that long. Um, As far as age goes, you're right that looking at tooth wear is how we determine age other than actually pulling a tooth and aging it. But, you know, generally you can get the age of an animal by looking at tooth wear. And, you know, the size of the antlers is a general indication of, of an animal, right? Like you can look at those antlers, which are good size. I can't remember if it was a five by five or six by six, but good sized antlers and say that's a mature animal. So he's likely over three to four just by looking at the antlers. And then after that, you do look at the the tooth wear and and look at how sharp you know the molars are. And just by looking at those pictures and kind of scrolling through them now, he definitely is an older animal. It's hard to tell scale of how big that tooth is, but you know, I, I would say six or greater, just kind of off the cuff, looking at the cusp of it, that he's definitely an older animal and he definitely, he could have fell victim to winter mortality. Now, I would also say, is there a road nearby? Could he have been hit by a road and then, or hit on the road and then, and then wandered off and died? Did he get caught in a fence? Uh, but winter mortality is definitely the first one you would look at with an older animal and not having the body to look at the condition. But, um, winter mortality would be my first guess on, on why you were able to find him.
1: Yeah. And he was not near any road at all. That would have been a fatality. He was, he was a ways in and, mm-hmm. uh, um, So, yeah, that's what we were kind of thinking, thinking winter mortality and wondering. um
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place
2: for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download
0: the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price, price line
1: if I didn't think he was that old maybe he'd be older like mature wise for sure but looking at the teeth we said old looking at the antlers which is not always a good good indicator Uh, looking at when they start to go downhill with their antler growth have you ever seen any trends of older bulls losing maybe more length out of their fronts or their backs first, or do you see any trends kind of that way with older bulls?
2: You know, in the northwest part of the state where they do, you know, they really work toward having older age class bulls, uh, they start to see antlers just not be as wide or, you know, they, they start to be smaller than they were, um, when they were younger. And, and let's take moose, for example, um, the same thing with moose, you know, they really get rounded out on their tips. So they, that's an indication of an older bowl and their palmation may not be as strong as it was when they're younger, but that's a really old bowl. And in the way we harvest moose in Colorado, we rarely get that many, um, truly old, old bulls that way. Um, The other thing I would say is that, you know, just looking at the antlers that you found, I I would say he probably was almost near his prime of what hunters are looking for. You know, he's an older, mature bull, but definitely had enough tooth left and not so much wear that he wouldn't be able to eat and do all of the, the prime functions. And now that I think about it, you know, he still had his antlers on, his skull plate, which tells me he died before he would have dropped those antlers as well, you know, being that it's June, you know bulls would have dropped their antlers by now, and so likely he died before he was able to drop those antlers right
1: yeah well i and uh, I know that was not the reason I called you, but thank you so much for that i just i I had yeah. so many questions and never found a a big bull like that and had always kind of wondered or or had the thought of man this is his last resting space spot this is where he laid down and died i didn't just find one of his sheds that he left years ago it was a it's his last spot where he laid down so uh, i'm lucky enough to take him home and we'll he's in the boiling pot right now getting all cleaned up and uh keep him inside and display him and tell a story But moving on. Yeah, congrats. uh, Can you? Thanks. And if score is anything to anyone, it measured like right at 310, like perfectly. And that was one of the cool things is he was perfectly symmetrical. Just beautiful. Really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So um, Northeast Region, give us uh, an understanding of some of the boundaries on that as well again so we can get an idea.
2: Kind of cut it into four pieces The Northeast region is the Northeast corner of the state and the boundaries are pretty easy as it relates to the East side is Kansas and on the North we're bordered by Nebraska and Wyoming on the West, the continental divide. So if you take the, you know, kind of come down from Wyoming, follow the continental divide down, you run that down to just before Buena Vista and cut across 285 and we encompass 11 mile and Spinney and those reservoirs. And then if you cut Northeast back just South of Castle Rock, just around Lyman and then go back to the Kansas border that encompasses everything in the Northeast region. So we have up to 14,000 foot peaks all the way out to the, the plains near Nebraska and Kansas. So it's a pretty, like I said, a pretty diverse corner of the state.
1: And you mentioned earlier that uh, you've learned how how wonderful the prairie actually can be. And being someone from South Dakota, I mean, I've heard this line, and I really appreciate it: that uh, anyone can love the mountains, but it takes a spirit to like the prairie, <laughs> and someone to really <laughs> grasp the grasp the beauty of that. And uh, I miss South Dakota for that for that reason, and, and the. Plains of eastern Colorado are are similar to that as western South Dakota. Um, another uh, thing that I just thought of is, you probably have a whole lot of people, like the most people in the state in your region that are recreating. I mean, that's where the population of Colorado mainly is, is in that region. So, d- managing the the recreators, hunters, fishermen trail runners any all them you you've got the the numbers there for sure
2: yeah, that's exactly right that you know it, it's funny as as biologists across the state we all think we work in the best part of the state and you know some of us talk about you know some people talk about all the elk and deer they have this way and and like we have all the people, which means we get to be challenged on how to manage people and recreation and wildlife all the time. It, it certainly is. It takes a lot of science and and social considerations to really manage all of the people. And and generally, you know, most people that live in Colorado love wildlife. So it's all people that are interested in wildlife, and so figuring out how to manage wildlife in the face of 3 million people is is you know something we get to deal with and we have some real victories in that and we also have a, a long road on on figuring out how to make that balance um work really well for us
1: yeah i sympathize on the challenge there for sure uh what kind of units comprise the region I mean, I know we've got, and, and you guys work as a biologist mainly with the DAUs at, with understanding herd dynamics and populations and health, uh, but hunters are, are looking at our game management units. So kind of what what is the, the bulk or some of the, the just general outlook of the hunting units uh, as far as... Uh, trophy in it or opportunity over the counter kind of can you give us a rundown on some of that
2: yeah that's a good question it it does vary quite a bit in the region i mean if you take east of i-25 everything is private land pretty much and so and everything is limited out there and actually as i talk about being limited everything in the northeast region is limited with the exception of one gmu that's over the counter so That does change how we manage things when you look at the Northeast region and realize that nearly everything is totally limited. And we do manage, I would say mostly we manage for opportunity, but we really try to balance that with some level of hunter satisfaction as it relates to the ability to find an older age class animal. We don't have too many units in the Northeast region where we are extremely limited in licenses because we're trying to provide some kind of level of of quality. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But one reason is that the demand for the opportunity in the Northeast region is extremely high. All of those people we talked about transcend in to a lot of interest in getting people out there. And as an agency, we have to balance the ability to try to meet demand or provide opportunity and further the hunting heritage with the ability to have a a good hunt which obviously we know is is subjective but we do have some units where we don't allocate nearly like you know a completely all opportunity we we try to ensure some level of Um, older class animals and whether that's, that's deer or elk, but I I would say we're more a balance of both. And just because you do manage for opportunity does not mean you won't have older class animals. I mean, the Northeast region has some very large animals, you know, for all different kinds of reasons. And so it, it can be balanced if you have the right habitat and um, access and and license allocation, so we're—I would say—we're more of balance than anything as it relates to how we allocate our licenses.
1: Yeah, and I understand that's a tough thing to answer when you have got a fourth of the state <laughs> there and yeah. having anywhere from fourteen thousand peaks down to the prairies. Uh, but I thought another question, as you're saying that, being that east at I twenty-five is primarily all private, does making management plans are managing that for a herd harder because there isn't as much public and you can't just send in 200 200 hunters in there uh, maybe to reduce a, a population or something like that. Is that because you're dealing probably mainly with private landowners and people knocking on doors to get permission and it's just not as easy as buying a tag and showing up and hunting. Is that so is that private land area kind of tougher to manage?
2: Yeah, that that is one element of managing wildlife that is more challenging on the plains because in other units in the state where there's public land, generally increasing allocation transcends into increasing harvest. I mean, generally speaking. And on the plains, that is not at all the case. I mean, you, there are certain units we could add a hundred licenses or 200 licenses, and that may not transcend into an increase in harvest at all. And so what it means is that as an agency, we have to do our part to really working with landowners and building good relationships and um, working with them on their interests for allowing public access or where we're going with our herd management plans and our objectives. And you know, a big part out there is making sure that we try to reduce game damage issues and, and recognizing that landowners are supporting the wildlife on the plains. And so that relationship is is very important to us. And we certainly could not get any real management done on the plains without having those relationships and and impressing upon them our ability or our need to get harvest truly does rely on them either giving permission to people they know or strangers or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. And in the world of everybody being worried about liability, that seems to be <laughs> a dwindling thing of people wanting people on their property. Uh, but yet there is still the, the I, you just got to talk to the right people. Lots of people interested in in working with with hunters.
2: Well, I think you hit on a good point there that I think there are quite a few landowners on the eastern plains that would give permission to someone they don't know and a lot of that is balancing out the time of year you ask them and maybe going out and helping fix fence in the off season, but I think there there are more uh, there's more ability to hunt private lands on the plains than people think, but it's probably not like it used to be 20 and 30 years ago because of things like liability and, and just, you know, maybe a bad experience or what have you. But I I guess I would encourage people that if they have a place and they can work with the local DWM to get a landowner name that sometimes just building a good relationship with them that isn't tied to calling them the day before the season opens might be a, a great time to, talk in the off season and give yourselves a chance to go out and hunt when your season rolls around.
1: What's the overall health and outlook of the deer, Ponghorn, elk herd in the Northeast?
2: Yeah, I, I like that question because that's something I feel like in the Northeast region, we were pretty lucky in that our herds are doing well in the Northeast region. There are some differences in the Northeast region that lend itself to having good herd performance. So we generally don't have heavy winters and you know difficult weather in the winter months like other areas of the state. So that harshness that trans into sends into winter kill like you found with your elk, that just doesn't happen at the same level on the eastern or in the northeast corner of the state like it does in other parts of the state. We've had some good years of moisture. So when we get these good wet springs, that also lends itself to highly productive herds. And each winter, we we do a series of inventory flights, either fixed wing or helicopter, or we even do ground counts on a lot of our game species. And generally speaking, our herd productivity is higher than the statewide average as it relates to either Fawn numbers. I mean, we can have really high fawn numbers compared to other areas of the state. And our elk calf numbers tend to be at least at the statewide average, if not higher. And our pronghorn generally do well overall. And the other thing about the Northeast region that I think lends itself to our herds doing well overall is that we do have a lot of open space and refuge areas. And while those make it difficult to manage wildlife, it sometimes helps the herds out. If you've ever driven through evergreen, you see how well elk do in evergreen. It just, those types of situations and providing food sources that are easier to acquire also turn into productive herds. And so generally speaking, we're doing really well in the Northeast region and and feel pretty lucky that we don't have some of these other concerns about productivity like we have in other areas of the state.
1: That's really interesting. I never even thought about that the, the the maybe the reduction in winter kill and uh, I don't hear much about the Northeast I'm over on in the western slope and don't really spend much time in, in the northeast part of the state so that's that's really interesting to hear one of the most recent public announcements that was out is the state public trust lands. Uh, opening up some more property in that and the cbw's goal of eventually getting to about uh shoot million acres yeah uh Mm -hmm. how does how does that affect the northeast what is there a lot of state public trust lands in that area
2: yeah we have quite a few um in that's pretty exciting for us, you know, being that that's one of the, the governor's goals is to increase access. And it's one of our goals to provide more public access that the Northeast region, that's really what we lack is public land for hunting. And so when an opportunity like this is available, it's something that we're pretty excited about. It. It just gives us the ability to more properly manage wildlife because that's one of the biggest hurdles. Not only do we have that on the Eastern Plains where everything is private land, but it also is an issue west of I-25 that we have limited public land in comparison to many other parts of the state. So public land and public access is such a huge deal for us that any opportunity to increase that we see as a real benefit for us to Manage deer and elk and and other game species on the landscape because we have challenges not being able to manage them as easily as if there was a lot more public land.
0: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Yeah, that, I'm all for more, more access. And in a, a, coming from a state with very little public land, uh, that's, that's, it's been fun that I have no shortage of places to go and to go check out. And I get myself in trouble sometimes because i away from home too much because there's new place I want to go check out. It's all public. <laughs> uh, just today, from what I understand, the Great American Outdoors Act just passed the Senate uh, to open up the LWCF funding for all the backlogged work on... A lot of federal land. Does Does Colorado Parks and Wildlife? Do you think they'll see any benefit from that that Senate bill?
2: I'm not. I'm trying to stay up on that. Like you said, it's it's happening right before our eyes, and it's a pretty exciting opportunity for us. And I sure hope it does. I just I'm not sure what it will look like in the end. But yes, it it I think everyone on our staff is pretty excited about the opportunities that it could be out in the future. And like you said, it's happening like as of today, you know, so trying to stay on top of it and figuring out what it can mean for us is pretty exciting. I mean, any attention toward the ability to, you know, manage better, manage wildlife, either through access or more money or habitat acquisition or easements or what have you is, is something that we all get pretty excited about and excited that, you know, politicians, Put their support that way
1: yeah and i've explained the north american model wildlife conservation and i did a whole episode on it kind of read through it so because i think that's something very very important that most hunters don't even understand and can you explain how that fits into your daily decision making process and and thought process
2: I really liked this question when you when you know when you presented it to me as something to talk about because from my perspective as a state agency wildlife biologist, you know, the core of what we do directly is tied to the North American model for wildlife conservation, you know, everything to do with the fact that you know fish and wildlife are there for the citizens of Colorado, and that we should be managing these populations so that they're sustained into the future and that our decisions and our actions should be based on science and that laws should be in place to protect that wildlife and to protect people so that all of us can enjoy this wildlife now and, and into the future and you know, and that it's, it's a public process, you know, everything we do as an agency is, should be for the public good. And when we make license recommendations or, you know, we're, we're making changes, you know, season structure changes or what have you, you know, these are public processes where we want to be managing for people. So I feel like, you know, as a biologist, especially the, the concept of sustainable populations and you know, managing for sustainable populations, but using science is really the foundation of what my job is. You know, my job is to collect data either through inventory or special projects with radio callers and to analyze the data and to make recommendations to manage those populations so that we're meeting our objectives of what the people want and that we have those herds into the future. And so, it really gets to the core of of what we're doing and, and it for me it gets me excited about what I'm doing because we're such a we're so fortunate to have that guiding our work into really driving us. You know, I feel like our agency is all about customer service and serving people and the people we hire are dedicated to that. So when they're you know when you're working long hours and collecting data, it's because you're excited about giving someone an opportunity to either just see a moose or maybe even go hunt a moose. So they're really the foundation of those principles of the North American model for wildlife conservation are based around my job duties. And so it's, yeah, it's pretty rooted in in what I do every day.
1: So one of the, the next thing I had was uh, one of the misinterpreted conversations. And this is kind of an extension, but very similar to the north american model of conservation but one of the misinterpreted conversations between hunters is exactly how those license numbers are determined can you be specific about your region and how uh maybe some of the new changes that are happening in the 2020 to 2025 big game structure and how how uh some new changes are forming there
2: yeah this is like you know, family dinner time conversation for me when all my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws want to know how we, how we come to our license numbers and why they don't get a moose license or a sheep license or, Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So I'm pretty well versed in, in explaining it. So I'll give you kind of the, the high level of how we do it in the state. And really, you know, we follow that same model in the Northeast region. So As we talked about earlier, the whole state is broken up into game management units, which are then grouped into a data analysis unit or a DAU. And and those DAUs, the management for them, and this applies to all game species, but those DAUs have guiding documents called herd management plans. And herd management plans are a document that CPW writes based upon collected scientific data, and they're directed toward balancing the biological and social considerations for each herd. So basically saying, how can we manage this herd, taking into account everything that may affect it, both biologically and socially, you know, carrying capacity, game damage, hunter interest. And each one of those has an objective range for the population and an objective range for the sex ratio. So the number of males per females, And annually, licenses are made to move those populations within the objective range. If they're in the objective range, the license allocation is made to keep them within that range or to drive them down toward it or to move them up. And so it may be cutting back or it may be adding licenses. So how do we get to what the number is? So each winter As I mentioned, we collect data on herd performance. So how many, you know, age and sex, how many young are in a herd and how many males are in a herd and we get ratios and we have models that predict where the population's going. And then as an agency, we analyze that and we sit down with field staff and we make sure that the science is making sense with what we're seeing on the ground. And then we talk about things like game damage and we talk about hunter access and feedback from hunters. And we make license recommendations that are moving us either toward an objective or keeping it within it, but that also take into consideration those other social factors. And and one of them is demand. You know, if we have the opportunity to meet the demand by first choice applicants, we may bump up licenses to do that because it still keeps the population within those objective ranges. But those Herd management plans are the guiding documents to our license allocation, and annually we adjust those licenses to get us to objective or to keep us within objective.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And the uh, wrapping up another piece to uh, having that North American model, which a lot of these decisions are all these decisions really are based on in your science that, that you're working through. We're so lucky to have that and not be like a European country that the queen owns the wildlife. <laughs> and so we are very, so so lucky to have that model and uh, um, folks that are invested in, in resources that are invested in, into providing a resource, a public resource. Because this is not just the pup, the wildlife we have right now are not just an untouched number. I mean, we almost lost all of them. I heard a really, really interesting podcast from the Boone and Crockett guys. And the whole purpose of the Boone and Crockett scoring system was just a collection of data because they thought they'd all be extinct. And so they wanted to collect <laughs> all this information. And that's why they had the whole deduction portion and people... Complain about the, doc, the the net score versus a gross, and and really it was just to to look at what a healthy herd was, and if you had one antler that was a few hundred inches and another one that was was far different, that had something to do with the health of the herd, and so that they were focused not on a score like a trophy, but score of the health, and so it all of our wildlife have been touched, <laughs> they've been touched and and managed by people since that time of almost losing so many of them. So I, I think that's, I it just fascinates me. I really enjoy talking about this sort of stuff. So I appreciate what you do.
2: Yeah, you're, you're right that we're lucky to be in a situation where we have multiple success stories with wildlife, right? And, and we know that through hunting and fishing dollars, directed toward wildlife management and the laws associated with that, that we were able to recover so many species, but also protect a lot of the species that we have. And and I know a lot of people listening to this probably know this, but a lot of our management is non-game for our agency as well. So, you know, the guy who buys an over-the-counter elk license or comes in He's helping restore ferrets to, you know, black-footed ferrets to their native range and, and working on, you know, bald eagle work. And so it's just, it's really fortunate for us that we have the ability to spend the time and money to collect that data, but then also use it to protect so many species species beyond the scope of just what we're lucky enough to get to hunt and fish.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Uh I really like the hearing about research projects, but the ones that are like ten years out it doesn't have the appeal. What do you got wrapping up right now that is is exciting what what have you found fa- some findings some things that have uh, uh just that have been cool to share? I'd love to hear hear those sorts of things.
2: We're in the middle of two pretty exciting. Projects Well, multiple. We have a lot going on in the region, which is good for us. But we've dedicated a lot of work to elk recently. And what I alluded to earlier is the challenges on the front range of being able to achieve harvest where we most need it because of things like cities or open space. You know, elk do really good at finding refuge in areas where we don't have the ability to implement a harvest program. But we've been lucky in the Northeast region that we have two different collar projects that have over 60 collars deployed where we're able to learn where these elk are going and where their movements are and the timing of when they're on public land and then work with some of our open space departments to implement harvest strategies to change the distribution of those elk. And it's not solely for harvest strategies, it's also for vegetation management. So that's a really exciting way to use radio collar data is to highlight, hey, this is where the elk are going and this is why they're causing problems on private land or they're getting hit on the highway, or we can't get too objective is we need to find strategies to applying pressure likely through harvest, but to keeping them moving in a more natural state rather than becoming resident town elk, which they cause a lot of problems doing that. And so that's one of our most exciting projects that we have going on in the Northeast region. And we're really proud of the partnership that we've made with our local open space departments because we couldn't do it without their, you know, their support in our ability to have different harvest strategies. So that's one of the neat ones that we're pretty proud of.
1: I, I used to make my students uh, do some research on that. When you go to the website and you click learn and, and we'd pull up some of the research that had been done and published uh, by CPW and we'd read through those in my outdoor science class. And that was always fun to read, read different research projects that had wrapped up in the findings and that sort of thing. So I, I appreciate those. And the, following elk movements would be interesting. That is always something that's intriguing (laughs) to see where they've gone, what they do, how far they go. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's neat. That'll be really cool to see, see some of that. So do you have any advice for, I'm going to say non-residents of the Northeast region. So that includes me, not just out-of-staters, but uh, folks that are looking at that region uh, for, for, coming to hunt what do you what do you have for advice general advice
2: my first piece of advice to anyone looking at the northeast region is you know understand where you have public land and and where your access points are because that truly is our limiting factor but i mean there there is if you look kind of down the continental divide there's a fair amount of public land on the west side of the Northeast region and and not having public land doesn't mean you have the opportunity to not hunt there, but understanding how much public land you have in a unit and what the opportunities are for licensing. I'm a big believer in, you know, finding ways to build a relationship with private landowners and getting access. You know, there's some tremendous deer hunting and pronghorn hunting on the Eastern Plains. I mean, just tremendous. And we do have the Pawnee grasslands out there, which is great. But I just encourage people to, to think outside the box and, and finding opportunities to um, build that relationship with landowners. The other thing is call your local district wildlife manager and say, hey, you know where, where are you having leftover licenses and where could a guy truly have access To go and hunt. And if you're not afraid to get away from the road, there's some good places in the northeast region. If 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 you have the ability to get into the backcountry, there's some good places to get back there. So I'd encourage people to do that. And you asked me earlier about season structure stuff, and I neglected to answer that. So I guess I'll make a plug here is that there's some good over-the-counter bear hunting opportunities in the northeast region. That's one thing that changed with season structure is more over the counter bear hunting opportunities and the ability to get multiple bear licenses. So it's, it's kind of tricky to read. So call if you have questions, but if you're interested in hunting a bear, there are areas of this, of the Northeast region where you can easily pick up a tag and, and go try that opportunity out. And I would encourage people to do that.
1: That's good stuff. <laughs> That's really good stuff. I appreciate <laughs> Appreciate the advice on that and i never never even really thought of i guess bear hunting in the northeast i haven't really uh yeah I, that's something and our bear population is kind of blowing up all over the state but and dealing with i know cpw deals with a lot of bear issues all over so you can see that in a big game structure having the having the add-on tags as a new thing um Shannon, I, I uh, don't want to take up any more of your time because we're, we're roll, coming on 50 minutes. So I appreciate very much uh, sharing, sharing this info with us. And I will get this out to our Colorado hunters, recreators to to highlight the Northeast region. And there's some good advice here for sure. I know one of the little takeaways there is, uh, for me is the uh, – knocking on the doors or creating that that relationship i used to be good at knocking on doors and now it's just kind of intimidating for some reason (laughs) it can be intimidating (laughs) but, but there's so many different ways of doing it uh from cold calling to writing letters knocking on doors doing all kinds of things so uh the the fact that there is game damage out there and they are having you guys come and take care of that there are folks that that want uh maybe some antelope removed of some sort. So there's, there's opportunity for sure. But again, I want to thank you and uh, appreciate your time.
2: Well, thank you for talking with me and letting me get a chance to, to highlight the good stuff going on in the Northeast region and for what you do and getting good information out to the public. So thanks for the time. Right outside of this one church town There's a gold dirt
0: road to a whole lot of nothing Got a deed to the land, but it ain't my ground This is God's country.